John 4. John 4. Apologize for the voice. I'm on the tail end of a head cold here. John 4. In line with what I just said about Sunday nights tonight and the conversation I'd like to have, I think that we could safely say this morning that if you have believed in Christ, we could say the vast majority of us who have believed in Christ probably have a story about how someone else was instrumental or impactful in bringing us to Jesus. That is, somewhere in our story there is someone or there are some people who did or said something which ultimately contributed to our realization that we needed to be saved. Most of us have that story. And I'm not only talking about maybe somebody sat with you and shared the gospel with you and actually maybe even prayed with you and led you to Christ, but there are probably those aspects of your story that say, you know what, at this point somebody gave me a gospel track. At this point at work I had a short conversation with a Christian in the lunchroom. You might have kind of those speckles, those instances, a little bit of influence here, a little bit of influence there, a little bit of influence here, uh, which all ultimately accumulated to the point where one day you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. A word here, a word there, a witness here, a witness there, and all those working together to soften your heart. That seems to be a very common story. The point is, God is working to seek and to save the lost, and he uses instruments. He uses people to that end. He uses men and women, Christians, to reach others by sharing their testimony and by living out the gospel and by explicitly preaching the gospel. And that is, he would use you and I, right? He would use you and I to share the gospel with others and perhaps play even a small part in God's work of drawing others to himself. And so God is at work. Saving men and women, but he uses instrumentality. He uses us to that end. In our passage this morning, we are going to read and see how Jesus responded to the Father's work of seeking and saving the lost, and how Jesus himself explicitly states that we are to follow his example in that. Specifically, we're going to see that, and here's our proposition, Jesus is the Savior of the world, whose passion it is to carry out the Father's work of seeking and saving the lost. And as his disciples, we are to participate in this work with the very same attitudes which he exemplified. A little bit longer than it should be as a proposition, but that's it. We'll repeat it a little bit longer uh, later. Now, John 4, remember the context. Jesus comes and sits down at a well. And there he meets a woman, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman who has had five marriages, failed marriages. And now she's with a live-in boyfriend. She has, according to Christ, this is what he uses this metaphor of the well and the water to show her. She has been trying to fill her life with something other than God in order to get satisfaction and fulfillment. A relationship after relationship after relationship, man after man after man, and now she's even given up any, any appearance of morality in that she is living with a man uh, after five failed marriages. And so she's been seeking out illegitimate means to fill a legitimate desire. There's emptiness there. 
She's trying to cope with life, but she's going about it all wrong. And so Jesus has a conversation with her, showing her, listen, you need salvation. You need eternal life. And he shows her, you need uh, eternal life via the Holy Spirit, and it comes through me. God wants to make you a genuine worshiper, and it happens through me. So Christ has that conversation with this woman, who then is so excited to realize he's the Messiah. He's the one. She realizes she needs to be saved. And so what does she do? She runs into town, remember. She runs into town, and she says, I have met the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done. A little bit of an exaggeration. He didn't tell her everything she's ever done, but he did tell her those things that were most explicitly on her mind, those things that most, in her mind, defined her. And so she runs into town, and really she begins to testify. She begins to preach, basically, right? Uh, the Messiah is here. Uh, come and see the Messiah. And so in John chapter 4, verse 30, look at it. It says, they went out, that is, many Samaritans in the town went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, something was happening in the interim. Well, this woman has gone into town and she's explaining to those in the town, I've met the Messiah. And some are starting now to come out, probably about a mile actually, out to the well. Uh, Something else was happening at the well during this time. And that is Jesus' disciples have returned. They've gone into the Samaritan town to buy food. They've had long journeys. Jesus is famished, I believe. Here he's resting at the well. They've gone into town to get food. This is when this conversation with Jesus and the woman takes place. Now they've come back while the woman is back in town testifying of Christ. Okay. So this is verse 31. Look at it. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, To them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Have you ever been so engrossed in something, so engaged in something that you forgot to eat? Has that ever happened to you? Oftentimes it happens when we are involved in something that we are just very engaged in, maybe even very much enjoying to the point that that is so satisfying to us that we're not even thinking about servicing our body through food, right? Uh, I think we've all experienced that to a certain degree. What's happened here is that Jesus was hungry and he was weary and he sat at the well to rest while his disciples have gone to get food. They come back, uh, eat, eat, master. Like they're concerned about his well-being. This is well beyond the time you should be eating. And he says, I have food you don't know about. Well, who brought him food? Then he explains what this food was in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is, he's saying, I'm satisfied. I've been busy about doing that which truly satisfies. I've been doing that which truly satiates. And what is that? I've been doing the Father's will. What was the Father's will? What was the Father's will? It was evangelism. It was evangelism. It was sharing the good news of the gospel with a lost sinner. The Father's will was to seek and to save the lost. That's what he was busy doing. The conversation between Jesus and his disciples is taking place at again at the time where this woman at the well is in town testifying. 
What this shows us is that Jesus was witnessing and he set off a chain of events where this woman now has been saved and she's going to go witness to others who are then now going to come out and they're going to be saved. And Jesus has sparked that whole chain of events and he's saying, I'm satisfied. This is what I've come for. This is the work of the Father and this is what I'm busy doing. The will of the Father was to see many who were lost come to Christ and to be saved. The work of the Father was to go, go about sharing the good news of salvation through Jesus. That's the work that he was busy doing. That's the work that left him satisfied. That's the work for which Jesus came. And so John 3, verse 16, remember from many weeks ago, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not buy, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the very purpose for which Jesus came into the world, was to seek and to save sinners. For God did not send his Son into the world uh, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is his purpose. This is the Father's will. This is what he is going about accomplishing. And so Jesus is saying, my joy is fulfilled. I am satisfied. In Luke 19, we read the account of a time when Jesus met someone else in an evangelistic effort. Remember, we saw Nicodemus. Now we see the woman at the well. Well, Luke 19, we see Jesus sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of eternal life through him with a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus also would have been a one rejected by society. Uh, he was a tax collector, which means he worked for Rome. He was a Jew who worked for Rome, which means that his own people kind of rejected him. And, of course, the Romans didn't have a lot of respect for him either because he's kind of like a traitor to his own people. Uh, Zacchaeus uh, was not a popular man. In fact, others would look at him and say, well, he's just a sinner. In Luke 19, Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus. And the Bible says that when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Gasp. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. So there's repentance here. And Jesus knows that this repentance from Zacchaeus, who is an extortioner as a tax collector, is coming from a heart of belief in Jesus. And so Jesus says, He's been saved. Salvation has come to his house. And then he says this in verse 10, anticipating that, that crowd that's saying, how dare you talk to a sinner? Anticipating that objection, he says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why I came. I came to save the lost, so I go after the lost. And what do the lost look like? Sinners. Whether it's a rich tax collector who's a sinner, whether it be a woman who's had five marriages and is now with a live-in boyfriend. Uh, either way, I've come to seek the lost. I've come to save sinners. And so what is he going to do? Well, he's going to go where the lost are. If he's come to save the lost, then he'll associate with the lost. As a result, Jesus upset a lot of people. He upset a lot of religious hypocrites. He upset a lot of pretentious snobs. So in Mark chapter 2, and the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the will of the Father. The Father is seeking and saving the lost, and so Jesus is busy about that work. I've come to seek sinners. Why is he doing this? Again, John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's the work of God. Call men and women to believe. Call men and women lost sinners. Help them to see their lost state. Help them to see that Jesus is the shepherd who would gather them together into his flock. Help them to see this. This is the work of the Father. This is what Jesus is doing. And this is what satisfies him. And so he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I'm fully satisfied. Because I'm about the work of seeking and saving the lost. But then the passage takes a turn. After having established what his own attitude was towards the lost and the fact that he was fully satisfied in carrying out the Father's will of evangelism, he then turns to his disciples and gives them instruction. And so throughout the remainder of our passage, Jesus is going to show his disciples how they ought to follow his example by adopting his attitude when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. What he's going to show them is, and us, is that he is the Savior of the world, whose passion it is to carry out the Father's work of seeking and saving the lost, and that they and we, as his disciples, are to participate in the work with the very same attitudes which he exemplified. And so let's look at those attitudes in the remainder of our text. First of all, and we're talking about attitudes that ought to guide our evangelism as we're busy about this work. First of all, like Jesus, we should have a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel with others a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel with others. Look in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Jesus often uses agricultural language. It's an agrarian society. He, uh, he's speaking their language. In our text, he quotes a commonly used phrase. Oh, there's four months until the harvest, and so uh, maybe at this time there was four months until the harvest. But, you know, you plant and you just wait. You wait for these things to grow, and there's months until the harvest. And he says, so this is what you say. But now he's going to use that terminology to make a point about evangelism. He's saying, although you say there's four months until the harvest, there is another harvest that's already ripe for the picking. In fact, there's another harvest which others are already busy engaged in. They're already, they're already reaping this harvest. It's not of wheat. It's of people. It's of people. As Jesus says this, no doubt, what is he doing? Remember the woman's gone into town? And now the Bible says in verse 30 that these people are coming out to him. So crowds, many, are coming to him. And so he and his disciples are at the well. And he says, look up, look. Look at the crowds that are coming from the Samaritan town and are coming to us. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. Men and women coming who need salvation, lost sinners. Many of those who would come to him from the town would believe and be saved. His point is the work of seeking and saving is well underway. It's harvest time. And so he wants his disciples to look up and to understand what attitude they ought to have regarding evangelism. The world is filled with men and women who are lost. 
Understand that you can look up and see the crowds and understand it's harvest time. Men and women whom the Father wishes to draw to himself, the fields are ripe, he's saying. So get busy. Get busy. We can't wait four months. That's not this type of harvest. This is already underway. And so there's urgency. Get to work. That's the point. Get to work. This is important for us to hear. We could ask ourselves, what are we waiting for? Is the work of seeking and saving ongoing right now? Are there men and women right now who need to hear the gospel? Are there men and women right now in whose hearts the Father is already working and drawing and softening? Yes. He's already at work granting eternal life to all who would believe in His Son. God is already busy working in hearts, and so God is already busy, so we ought to be busy. God is at work, so we ought to be at work. That's the point. There's some urgency here. Because God would use instruments. And talk about urgency. Look in verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And so in Jesus' analogy, the reaper, the one who's responsible for the harvesting, is already working and already getting paid. He's already harvesting. Some are already out there sharing the gospel, planting, Some are already harvesting, actually seeing men and women receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so, and here we are just standing around. So Jesus says, get busy, engage. God is working, so you should work. Men and women all around who are ripe for the picking. So share the gospel. Share the good news of salvation in Jesus. Plant the seed. You may plant, you may reap. But either way... Rejoice and be busy about the work. So the simple question is, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Where is our sense of urgency? Do you believe that God is at work? you believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? you believe that God is softening hearts and imparting the word of God? you believe that he's busy doing that? Well, then we ought to engage in that work. So urgency. Next, what we see is that not only should Jesus' disciples share the sense of urgency where evangelism is concerned, but they should also share his attitude of compassion. Compassion. Now, verse 35, you're not going to see it immediately here, but he says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And I've already mentioned the field he's looking at are the masses of people who are coming out of the Samaritan town. That's the field. It's people. You say, well, where do you see compassion there? I think we can safely assume the attitude of Jesus as he looks upon the crowds because of another account that we find in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Look what it says next. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Same terminology, same metaphor. Harvest. The field is the people. The seed is planted by the preaching of the gospel. There's a harvest ready to be reaped. And what does Jesus say as he looks upon this harvest? What does it say 
is his attitude as he looks upon this harvest. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think it's safe to say that as the crowd's coming out of the Samaritan town and Jesus looks upon that crowd, he has compassion upon them, seeing that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus sees the crowds, he sees lost men and women. He sees their lost state, compares them to wandering sheep. And what are the two words? Harassed and helpless. Suffering. Suffering without the ability to escape the suffering on their own. In other words, they need someone to gather them together. They're lost. They need to be found. They need, and the, 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 the picture there again is a shepherd and sheep. They need a shepherd who can lovingly come and uh, gather them together and then care for them. This shepherd, of course, would be Jesus. God, through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 34, said, I will set up... For, Over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's Jesus. And so Jesus, with that shepherd-like loving care, sees the crowd, has compassion upon them, and says they're harassed and helpless. They need to be saved. They are suffering under their sin. And so when Jesus sees crowds, what does he see? He doesn't first see them as sinners that need to be condemned, but he sees them as sufferers who need to be saved. He doesn't see them first as sinners to be condemned, but as sufferers who need compassion. Are they sinners? Yeah. Does sin deserve judgment? Yes. However, Jesus came into the world the first time not to condemn the world, in order, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3.17. So he has compassion upon them, compa- compassion to suffer along with. This is a sensitivity to the reality that everyone out there, unbelievers, are suffering under the curse of sin. Suffering under the curse of sin. Now, when you see the pornographer, the abortionist, when you see the person who's propagating all kinds of sinfulness, do you look at that person as one who's suffering? Or do you look at the, that one as one who really needs to suffer? Jesus has compassion upon sinners. He empathizes with the heartache and emptiness in captivity which sinful men and women experience. That sinful, I say that heartache or that emptiness or captivity to sin which leads men and women to do all sorts of sinful things. Defiling themselves and defiling all those around them and defiling society. But when Jesus tells his disciples, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest, he's asking his disciples to see the souls of the Samaritans, men and women who are making their way to him, who are lost and who need compassion. Later on, his disciples are going to forget this lesson. They're going to forget this lesson because at at one point, they're going to go into a Samaritan town. They're going to want to pass through a Samaritan town. They're going to ask for permission. Because they could be hostile, right? Samaritans and Jews. And so they're going to ask permission to go through a Samaritan town, and they're going to be rejected. They're going to say, no, you're going to Jerusalem? No, you're not going to pass through us to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to be rejected. And remember, we mentioned this last week, what was their response? Lord, can we call down fire from heaven to wipe them out? Right? They've got a sense of the power of the Holy Spirit, so they're saying, we want to be like Elijah, right? Uh, we, want to be, we want to see that fire rain down, and so can we call down fire from heaven? What was that? They forgot. 
they fall back into their attitude of prejudice. Instead of seeing men and women as a potential harvest of souls, they saw them as chaff, fit to be cast into the fire. But we make the same mistake. We make the same mistake. We make the same mistake looking out at the world. When Jesus' disciples looked at the Samaritans, instead of seeing souls, they saw only their sin. We do the same thing. Again, the adulterer, the pornographer, the abortionist, the sexual deviant. When we see people and define people according to their sin, we are then likely to channel all of our disagreement and all of our disgust and all of our hatred towards that sin towards the person. All of our hatred and disgust and disagreement with the sin, we then take that out upon the individual, upon the person, seeing them only as their sin and not as a soul. Instead of seeing them as a lost soul, harassed and helpless and ripe for harvest, we see them as an evil sinner ripe for hell. This is essential for us to understand because as Christians, we can often succumb to the culture war mentality. The culture war mentality. With this way of thinking, everyone pushing immoral, godless philosophies and values is seen more as an enemy combatant than a prisoner of war. Say, a prisoner of war? Well, who's prisoner? Who's prisoner? Our war is not against the lost. Our war is against Satan. Satan has his prisoners of war. The gospel frees those prisoners of war. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I mean, those who are opposed to the gospel, correcting them with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The point is, those who would set themselves in opposition against the gospel are those who are what? Prisoners of war. Ensnared by Satan. And of course, uh, it appears as if they're doing, uh, performing and participating in sin in and of their own will. It's their own volition, sure. Uh, They're satisfying their own sin nature, absolutely. But the Bible also says that these are those who have been ensnared by the devil. So, it's helpful. If we look at the culture, look at lost souls as those who need to be delivered, those who are captive, those who can benefit from the freedom we have to offer through the gospel, instead of looking at them as opponents in a culture war. This seems hard, yeah? It's hard because hopefully you have a righteous indignation. It's hard because you ought to be jealous for the holiness of God. It's hard because we're seeing an increase in the hostility of the world against the church. And so it seems just very natural to kind of have the battle lines drawn and said, okay, there's them out there and us in here and we need to go to war. But this was not the attitude of Christ at all. There will be judgment against sin. Yeah, but that's in God's purview. There will be judgment against sin. There's going to be mass judgment. There's going to be the day of the Lord. Sure, there's going to be a reckoning. Yes, but that's all in the hands of the Lord to do as he will when he chooses. That's in his sphere. Our sphere is to lovingly share the gospel with those who are captive to sin. 
So next time we find ourselves getting angry or upset at people, especially those in positions of influence, who are perpetuating, and I say especially those who are in positions of influence because it seems we are most willing to justify an attitude of hatred and animosity and resentment towards those who are in positions of authority uh, when they uh, execute policies, for instance, that are anti-God. Next time we find ourselves getting angry or upset with people, especially those in positions of influence who are perpetuating evil or godlessness, we need to take a moment to remind ourselves that this person has a soul and their soul is captive to sin and that the answer then is for them to understand freedom comes through Christ. First, for them to recognize that they are captive and that they need Christ. And so we ought to pray for their soul. That somehow, somewhere, someone will share the gospel with that individual and they will be saved. Beyond that, next time you're out at the store, at work, just driving around, see crowds of people, try to make it a discipline to see people as souls. As souls, not as their sin. Remind yourself that the world is not the enemy, but the mission field, a field which is ripe to harvest. So, according to Jesus, like him, we should have a sense of urgency because the work is already underway. We ought to have an attitude of compassion since the world is lost. And next of all, we're going to see we ought to have an attitude of cooperation because others are already at work. He says in verse 36 through 38, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What's he talking about here? The Samaritan harvest that's happening here. I mean, is this the first work that God has done in the Samaritan village? Well, We know that John the Baptist has been laboring. John the Baptist has been preaching. John the Baptist has been preparing hearts to receive the Messiah. Somebody's already been at work. God's been working in the hearts of these Samaritans already. John the Baptist has been preaching. The prophets before him also have been testifying. The scriptures uh, have been used of God. There's already been work underway. And so now it just happens to be the time for harvest. But there's been a whole lot of planting going on. There's been planting and there's been watering and there's been fertilizing. God's already been doing this. So some have already labored before you. And now you just get to benefit from the harvest. The point is that there are those who plant and there are those who water and there are those who fertilize. There's all kinds of workers in this work of evangelism, right? Maybe you've experienced this before where you were able to share the gospel with somebody and it just seemed like, man, what happened? It's like like you took a match to gasoline in that you just share the gospel and this person was just ready. They're just ready to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and you're you're just kind of taken aback. Like, where did this come from? But you realize you're in the right place at the right time and you're sharing the gospel and you know what? There's already been planting and there's already been watering. There's already been fertilizing. That's already happened. God's already been at work. Others have gone on before you doing this work and you just happen to be there for the harvest. I hope there's never been a situation. There may have been a situation in your life like this. I mean, has there ever been somebody you've been praying for? You want to see them get saved? Maybe you've witnessed to them. You've shared the gospel with them repeatedly. And then you find sometime down the road that they did get saved. They did receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. But it's after someone else shared the gospel with them. And you're thinking, man, that one was mine. (laughs) That's the one that I've been praying for. That's the one that I tried to be an example to. And I tried to befriend. uh, 
And you can almost have a sense of jealousy. Almost like you've missed out on something. Jesus is saying, that's not how this works. There's sowing and there's reaping. There's planting, and uh, this is just, we're all just busy. And so there are times where you're going to be sharing the gospel, and maybe all you're doing, all you're doing is just sprinkling a little seed. That's it. Maybe all you're doing is working up the soil a little bit, and that's it. Maybe all you're doing is sharing a little bit of water there on that seed, and that's it. You might not see the harvest. All kinds of workers in this work. But the point is, I think, that we ought to be satisfied We ought to be content with faithfulness. So be content that you're able to share a word of witness. Be content that you're able just to share a testimony of how God has been good to you. Be content that you're able to just have a little bit of impact in this person's life and recognize that's part of the work too, right? So how are we planting seeds? You may not have time or opportunity to share a full-fledged gospel presentation with someone. But perhaps we have the opportunity to pray for someone. Maybe we have the opportunity to show Christ-like love to someone in some way. Maybe we have opportunity just to share a bit of our testimony. Perhaps you could hand someone a gospel tract. Perhaps you could have a supply of books that kind of, short books that kind of summarize the gospel that you hand out here and there. Maybe you simply try to consistently love others like Christ. Maybe you make it a concerted effort to live like Christ before others. You might not see immediate results. You might not see harvest, but that's not the point. The point is, we're all busy about the work. We can all contribute in some way because there's sowers and there's reapers. I say that we are to have an attitude of cooperation in our evangelism because we should be happy. We should be happy and rejoice when others are able to see a harvest. Maybe you plant, they harvest, but we rejoice together. Well, one last thing about the idea of sowing and reaping. The more seeds planted, the more likely to see fruit, right? The more seed planted, the more likely to see fruit. And so cast out as many seeds as you can. Share the gospel as much as you can. Hand out as many gospel tracts as you can. The more seeds cast out, the more likely something is going to fall on good soil, right? And so be busy casting out seeds. By the way, there's gospel tracts over there you can grab. And take with you and make it a habit of handing those things out. Share your testimony. Share the love of Christ. Look for opportunity to share the gospel. Hand out gospel tracts. Invite the church and so on. And so Jesus says to his disciples in verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. And so let's be part of that work. So we're all laboring together at the same work. And so we should not only have an attitude of urgency and compassion and cooperation. Next of all, what we see is that we ought to have an attitude of expectation. Expectation. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. And all I want to point out here is the fact that Jesus has chosen to speak of evangelism, the work of seeking and saving the lost, in the context of agricultural language. He's talking about a field and plants growing. He's not talking about some man-made structure. He could do that, however. He could talk about evangelism like building a tower if he wanted to, but that's not what he does in this context. He uses agricultural terminology for a reason. You can plant a seed, but can you make it grow? 
You can plant a seed and make sure the soil's perfect and you can water it and make sure that this thing gets sunlight. You can do all that, but can you actually cause the germination to happen? Well, you can't. Germination and growth and fruit production is all bound up in the very design of the seed. All of that is ultimately beyond our ability to fabricate or to create. In other words, this is God's work. God's the one who produces life, not us. We plant, we water, but we cannot produce life. And there's a reason why, God, or when, why Jesus uses uh, this type of metaphor. Despite all of our efforts in evangelism, the production of fruit is ultimately in the hands of God. Jesus alludes to this in Mark chapter 4 in describing the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom of God is as, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. Now, wait a second. Verse 27 of Mark 4 says that this man scatters seed on the ground, then he sleeps. Rises, and then he sleeps again. He rises, and he sleeps again. And the whole time that he's just kind of sleeping, the seed sprouts and grows. The seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. (laughs) That's beyond him. I don't know. But I know if I take a seed and I put it in the soil and I water it, uh, it comes to life. I don't know exactly how it happens. But what he recognizes is it's completely out of his hands. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He planted and he harvested, but really the growth in between, that was all in God's hands. That's the point. The point is, the plant grows and becomes ripe. The plant grows and becomes ripe as a result of the work of the Lord and not our work. This is a providential care of God. This is how the gospel works as well. For some, this may be frustrating to think that it's completely out of our hands to see the germination take place and the roots go down and for that sprout to take hold. It can be frustrating. In fact, that's so frustrating for some people that they come up with all sorts of plans, uh, all sorts of tactics to try to manufacture fruit, right? Because we want to see results. And because we want to see results, we want to see immediate results. This goes right to the heart with how some people evangelize. I'm going to knock on your door, and I'm going to run through a quick presentation on the gospel, and then I'm going to prompt you to pray a prayer. And then after you pray the prayer, I'm going to say, okay, you're saved. And we're just going to be almost like it's formulaic. Why? Because I want to plant, and I want to water, and I want to harvest, and I want it all right now. It can be frustrating for some people. On the other hand, however, I'm going to suggest to you, but the fact that this growth is all in the hands of God shouldn't be frustrating. It should be encouraging. Because we have a promise. In Isaiah chapter 55, as God is promising, really speaking of the day when he's going to bring salvation to his people, He says in Isaiah 55, verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the context of talking about bringing salvation to his people, he compares his word to that idea of seed. It's going to go out and it's going to water and it's going to bring forth sprout and it's going to produce a harvest. My word's going to do that. And he says, 
my word will accomplish all of my purposes. My word is going to do all that I have sent it out to do. It's going to accomplish all that I purpose, he says. So that gives us confidence, doesn't it? So that means as we share the gospel with others, what are we going to be careful to do? All we want to do is make sure the seed that we're planting is the unadulterated gospel. Because it's the unadulterated gospel that carries this promise. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so this must be the pure gospel, not a gospel altered or changed because we think by altering the gospel we can bring forth more fruit. On the contrary, the Lord says, my word is that which accomplishes all my purposes, so make sure the gospel we share is pure. And then we have a promise. God's word is effective. God's word accomplishes his will. And so we can preach the gospel with expectation. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's living and active. It's powerful. And again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so, share your testimony. Share the gospel. Talk about Christ. And do it with expectation. Understand that God blesses our faithful pronouncement of the unadulterated gospel. Expectation. This is important for us to know because in our post-Christian, post-modern, post-truth, post-common sense culture, it can be easy to become cynical and discouraged and even hopeless where evangelism is concerned. Hasn't the culture entirely turned its back on God? Would anyone really believe does it make any sense to share the gospel with my neighbor or my coworker or my friend or my family member or my classmates? Does it make any sense? I mean, I've seen their bumper stickers, and it seems like it would be very unwelcome if I shared the gospel with them. Does it make sense to share the gospel in this culture? Yes, because God is at work. God's word is effective, and so we can share the gospel with expectation. So in conclusion, Jesus is the Savior of the world whose passion it is to carry out the Father's work of seeking and saving the lost. And as his disciples, we are to participate in this work with the very same attitudes which he exemplified. Attitudes of urgency and attitudes of compassion and attitudes of expectation. And we could even go full circle and say, in all of that then, we ought to have an attitude of satisfaction, just like Jesus does. And that this is satiating, this is satisfying, sharing the gospel with others. Now, Remember that as Jesus gave his disciples these instructions regarding the proper attitudes in sharing the gospel, men and women were coming to him from the Samaritan town after hearing the testimony of the woman that he met at the well. And again, just to emphasize again, this, this woman is a sinner, as we all were in coming to Christ. But I mean, even culturally, she was rejected, right? Uh, and Jesus chooses to use her to just set in motion this chain of events which is now leading masses to come to him. Let's read the remainder of our passage to see what it looked like when the harvest came in. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Isn't that amazing? A Samaritan town? Jesus a Jew? Wasn't too worried about his reputation, was he? Not at all. He stays with the Samaritans for two days. And it says, many more believed because of his word. 
Many believed in verse 39. Many more believed in verse 41. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's not, that's not harsh, by the way. It's just saying, you know, you told us, and we came because of what you said, but now we've seen it for ourselves. We've seen it for ourselves. What have they come to realize? That Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Do you think at that harvest that everyone who would be saved out of the Samaritan town was saved on that day? Do you think that everyone who would ever be saved out of that Samaritan town, who was alive at that time, do you think that they were saved on that day? Or do you think that maybe some of them were saved later? Do you think that maybe some even rejected Jesus and didn't believe in this moment, who maybe were saved later? I think that that is a possibility. After Jesus' death and after his resurrection and his ascension, the Bible says that Christians were scattered due to persecution. And then a man named Philip went into what the Bible says is a Samaritan town. This is after Jesus' earthly ministry, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Isn't that interesting? So here we are again with an evangelistic effort in a Samaritan town. May, maybe the very same Samaritan town. We don't know. Even if it's not the Samaritan town, what happened in this particular Samaritan town certainly would have spread over the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the Bible says that as Philip proclaimed to them the Christ, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And the verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. My point in bringing this up is simply this. I think that Jesus and the disciples saw a great harvest as the Samaritans came out of that town on that day. But I think in addition to the harvest taking place, some of that actually just served as planting, also just served as watering. I think that part of that effort also was, you know, setting the groundwork for a harvest that would come later. And so Philip preaches, and all of a sudden, this incredible response, and many are saved. The point is the encouragement to us that no matter where we are in that effort, no matter where we are in God's uh, work of drawing somebody to himself, whether it be just the planting or whether it be the harvesting, the point is there's an urgency here, and we ought to take joy in the work. With that, we should be able to leave here this afternoon with an attitude of urgency and compassion and cooperation and expectation and then ultimately satisfaction in the work of evangelism. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. and We thank you that many of us have a testimony of somebody sharing the gospel with us. Lord, we know that salvation is the work of your Holy Spirit and drawing men and women to yourself is the work of your Holy Spirit, but... We also recognize that you use means. You use the preaching of your word to generate faith. You use the testimony or the witness of those who have been transformed by Jesus uh, to work in the hearts of others as well. Lord, you use instrumentality. You use us in your work of seeking and saving the lost. 
So we pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses. I pray that you'd help us to take away any fear, um, maybe the fear of feeling like we have to be able to present a full-fledged gospel presentation to somebody. Help us also to understand that a word of witness, a word of your faithfulness to us, showing the love of Christ to others, all of these things contribute to, to your work of seeking and saving. It may just be planting a seed. It may just be watering. But it's all important work. It all ought to bring satisfaction to us. We all ought to be faithful about it with a sense of urgency. We pray you'd help us be faithful, sharing the gospel with others. Help us to find avenues and ways to evangelize. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'll bring forth fruit. Uh, we have that expectation. We have that faith because we have the promise. So we pray that you'll bless our efforts of evangelism, bring forth fruit. We recognize that we might not see the harvest. We might not see that seed break ground but we can have the confidence that because of our faithfulness and sharing the unadulterated gospel that you're going to use it. The Lord, help us to be faithful in the work and to be satisfied in the work, even if we don't see harvest. Uh, but then we also pray you'd be so gracious to allow us to see the harvest, to see men and women who uh, just out and out profess their faith in Jesus through baptism, those who would come to Christ and be saved clearly. Help us also to see that harvest. And then, uh, Lord, we just pray you'll help us as a church to grow this way. Help us not to be insular. Help us not to be only inward-looking, but help us to be projected into the culture uh, to see unbelievers not uh, as those sinners who need to be opposed or who need to be fought against in a culture war, but help us to see them as lost sinners who need to be saved and freed from the captivity of their sin through the gospel. Help us to be faithful. Help us to adopt the attitude of Christ in all of this. And, Lord, we thank you for all of this in his name. Amen.